Good morning. Good, good morning and welcome. Welcome to this 20th celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. study day here at Goshen College. We're very excited to welcome a number of guests and share our theme with you today. Our theme this year is Shalom, that we may be whole. We'd like to extend this idea of Shalom to extend beyond the idea, the notion of peace, but the notion of peace that is reflected in wholeness, unity, and equity. We would like to be persons and communities living in right relationship. This concept serves a as a reminder of the spirit of this day, that we can seek out those most in need and live our, line, our lives aligned with the words of the Lord's Prayer, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our presenters this day have traveled great distance to be here. We've pulled two people away from the 80 degree temperatures of Southern California to enjoy our eight degree temperatures in Goshen, Indiana. At least that's the temperature it was when I woke up this morning. We're excited to have with us an author, uh, two authors, technically, uh, Dana Johnson and Wilbert Smith. They'll be sharing from two different genres of writing, or many different, I would imagine. And they will be taking the opportunity to continue to expand on this theme of shalom that is broad and um, powerful. Dana Johnson will begin, and she is the author of Elsewhere, California, and Break Any Woman Down which won the Flannery O'Connor Award for short fiction. Her work has been anthologized in The Shaking, Tree, Shaking the Tree, a collection of new fiction and memoir by black women, The Dictionary of Failed Relationships, and California Uncovered, Stories for the 21st Century. Dana was born and raised around, in and around Los Angeles, California, she is an associate professor of English at the University of Southern California, where she teaches literature and creative writing. She lives now in downtown Los Angeles. But before Dana comes to share some of her fiction work with us, I'd like to invite our very own student group, Parables Up, for a performance of Will You Harbor Me by Sweet Honey and the Rock.
I am so pleased to be at Goshen over the MLK holiday. Um, it's wonderful to be here. And I'm just gonna read briefly from my novel, Elsewhere, California, which is partly a coming of age novel, but it's also a novel that's uh, about what it means to be African American in America, both in the past and currently, and what that will be in the future. Um, and so I'll read from two brief sec sections. One's the prologue in my character's adult voice, and then a smaller section. Um, the next section is when she's a young kid and they're leaving the inner city to move to the suburbs because of gang violence. My parents were not playful people. They did not tell jokes or laugh a lot. When I try to remember how they were when I was a child, I only remember them working very hard and fighting. But once when I was five, my mother and father played this game with me. I asked, where am I from? My father listed all the possible places. He started with my mother. That's where you came from, he said. Where else, I asked, where else? Watts, he said, that is where I was conceived. Then 80th Street, he said, the place I first knew as my home. Then Los Angeles, then California, all the way from Tennessee, all the way from Africa, my father said. Where else, I cried, from kings and queens? No, he would say, kings and queens had buckets of gold and we never had any of that. Yes, I said, no, he said. And we went back and forth. To prove it, he tried to tell me serious stories about hard times and sacrifices and how far we've come and how far we have to go. Boring, sad stories. And so I said, I'm not from any of those places. I'm just from California. Where in California then, he asked me. California is big, he said. I couldn't pick Los Angeles because I was already here. So I picked a name I really liked all by myself with the help of television. A crazy complicated name. Super Cali Fragilistic Expialidocious. Hmm, my mother said. She frowned. Super Cali who? Who lives there then, she asked. Anybody who wants to, I said. Well, how are you gonna get to this place you're talking about, she asked. I was stuck then, I didn't know. How was everyone going to get there? I hadn't thought that far ahead. I love where I was already in Los Angeles, but I still love my invented place in California, even better, because it sounded like confetti and long streamers coming down from the sky, caressing my face, this other place in California, like glitter and myriad pieces of confetti, the beautiful blue chip stamps my mother and I used to save and all kinds of other images and words and ideas I couldn't put a name to at the time. All our stuff in the van and mama hugging folks and daddy shaking hands, we packed and ready to go. Me and Cassandra sit on the steps and I think, I wanna remember what she looked like, but I don't know why since I'm gonna see her again. We both got baby alives that pee and boo-boo and eat and drink. And when mama holler at me to come on, let's go, me and Cassandra trade dolls at the last minute and say we're gonna trade them back next time we see each other. We gone babysit each other's kids. I trade my black baby alive for her white one even though Cassandra's done washed her hair too much and made it hard. It's different than what I had all the time at least. But still, I hold my black baby one more time and I kiss it. I say, goodbye, baby alive. Then mama says she ain't gonna tell me again to come on here and we get in daddy's Buick Wildcat and drive away from 932 West 80th Street, apartment eight. I wanna be prepared for my long journey, I tell daddy. Journey, he say, it ain't but 30 minutes up the road. I don't care. I take all kinds of books with me for the trip to the valley. Daddy says it's the San Gabriel Valley and I never heard of that before, San Gabriel but it sound pretty to me. I never been to where we going, but I been to the desert and down south. It ain't as far as all them places, but it's far enough to read for a long time. I've been reading Little House in the Big Woods about traveling far from where you're from. Owen seen the house before, daddy took him to see it and mama too, but I ain't never seen where we going. 
Mama say the house is nice. There's gonna be grass in the front yard and the backyard and no guns. I look out the window before I read some more of my book. And after a while, LA start looking different. Don't see no trash in the street, no liquor stores, no church's chicken. We driving on a long highway. The signs say 60 with Pomona next to it. I see hills on both sides of the freeway, green and yellow. That's the color of the hills. And there's flowers and patches, yellow, white, and purple, and cows way off in the fields. Not a whole bunch, but cows anyway, big and brown. I get happy to see the cows and I say, look, cows, they make me happy because I never see no animals ever, not where I lived, not even hardly cats and dogs, except at the zoo. You gotta go down south to see animals. But how can I be this close to LA and it be so different? How come I never seen this before if it's so close? But it's not just the cows. They got big old shopping centers out here, they call it. Malls, I say to myself, mall, with a water slide and little cars you can drive with bumpers, a big place for walk-in movies where they play a whole lot of different movies all in one place, not just the drive-in where we used to go. They got more stuff to do out here, more places to go. It smell different and look different and everything's gonna be different. We headed west to West Covina and San Gabriel Valley, I say it to myself over and over again. West Covina, San Gabriel Valley, and it sounds like a song. Just when we get into the part in the book where Laura and them might drown in their covered wagon, trying to cross the river, daddy say, look, we hear. We turn a corner in the middle of the street and, they t and that takes us to our house. There's a tall white pole with a ball coming and points of light coming out of it like a planet. Under it, it say, welcome to Galaxy Homes and Stellar Living. What's stellar mean, Mama, I ask, and she move her shoulder up. Darnell? Mama pull on her hoop earring and look at Daddy. It means something to do with the stars, Daddy say. I can understand that part, but what do stars and homes mean to each other? Daddy seemed to know I don't understand, so he add, they built these houses in the 1950s, Abe, long before you was born, when space and progress was on everybody's mind. Now, I don't understand what progress mean, though. I want to ask what it got to do with houses and planets and stars, but then Owen says, well, it's 1975 now, and that little ball on top of that pole looks stupid. <laughs> Our house looked like a barn, not a star or nothing I thought it was supposed to look like. It's a dark red, almost the color of chocolate, and the garage door is the part that looks like a barn two X's in the white, and white all along the edges. But then the barn make me think of Laura Ingalls, even though she wasn't living in no barn. I don't care. If this was a house on TV, there would be hay and chickens and horses, and I would be milking my cows and pitching my hay with a giant fork. Chores. I always like the sound of that word. So many chores to do with Pa getting the lay of the land, they say. Chores to get your house in order. But this is just a garage that got a water heater and dirty paint cans left from the people who used to live here, so I ain't no pioneer. I feel happy because we got grass in the front and in the back too. Daddy say, um, in the back too, Daddy say. When we get out of the car and walk to the door, everybody quiet. Daddy put the key in the door and turn around before he unlocked the door. He's smiling at everybody. Y'all wanna go in? Quit playing, Darnell, Mama say. It's hot out here, but she's smiling too. And when we go in, I run straight to the room that's mine and lay down in the middle of the floor. It's mine, I got my own room. Don't have to share with Owen. It's the smallest room in the, in the whole house, only my bed and one dresser, but I don't care. All around the house, everything make me feel happy and silly. I get up and run around trying everything out. We got a glass door in the kitchen that's supposed to slide back and forth, but when Mama try it, she can't open it. I tell Mama, let me do it, let me do it, and then I open it easy. It must be broke, Mama say. She look at me like I'm playing a trick on her, like I made it hard for her. But Mama, I say, it ain't broke, you just know how to do it. You have to know how to do it, and I open that door easy. I slide it back and forth until Mama say, quit it, you smart, I can see that. Good for you, she say. 
And then there's a big tree, a big tree I can climb up until I get scared to go higher. Rubber, mama say, it's a rubber tree. We got three bedrooms and one bathroom with a tub and one bathroom with a shower and a living room, a kitchen more than two people can stand in. I feel like we rich. When I tell daddy it feel like we rich, he laugh. Nah, eh, we a long, long way from rich. But we doing better than we was, and that's what progress mean. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dana. That was lovely. Um, I am privileged to honor our uh, honor, recognize, and welcome our second guest this after this morning. Losing track of time, days, all of it. Um, Dr. Wilbert Smith is an author and award-winning filmmaker. He is a storyteller, and he comes with, to us this morning with a story to share, a story that's powerful and challenging. He is, um, Dr. Smith is a prestigious member of California's Community College Board of Governors. He is also, uh, has also taught in the School of Business at Pasadena Community College. And when he's not writing or filmmaking, he owns and operates an insurance agency in Altadena, California. Before we welcome Dr. Smith, I would like to invite you all to take a moment and direct your attention to the screen. We'd like to give you a small snippet of the film that Dr. Smith has, has put so much time and energy and effort into so that he can continue to share a story, a story that hits close to home here in Indiana, that has its origins and roots here, that continued out and carried to California. Um, this few minutes that we will see here is just a trailer of the film. If you did not find the opportunity to visit and join in either of the full-length screenings of this film, there will be a copy, there is a copy available in the Goshen College Library and also out of the Center for International and Intercultural Education's library in the Union Building. So please feel free to take the opportunity to um, watch the movie in its entirety if you feel so inclined. So we'll take a moment, minute now to watch the trailer and then and welcome Dr. Smith up for his presentation. Good morning, Indiana. I'm very pleased to be here. And yeah, that story about uh, it's pretty cold here is true in case you didn't know. <laughs> and yeah, it's 80 degrees today in California. And uh, never dawned on me though because I knew I'd be in Indiana. And I want you to know I'm wearing some thermal underwear. <laughs> and I want you to know I haven't worn thermal underwear in about 15 years. <laughs> but I'm okay. Virtus Hardeman, boy, he was my friend. He not only was my friend, but became my surrogate dad, if you will. He's a man that said to me, Wilbert, could you ever imagine living your life knowing that you must hide who you are? And if individuals ever got a glimpse of you out of disguise, they will do what some of you just did when you saw that little snippet. You turned away. You turned away because you just could not bear to look. But yet for him, he lived that way every single day, basically all his life. 
And he said to me once, he said, could you imagine if I just had the opportunity to just take this thing and peel it off as though I was peeling an orange and just throw it in the trash and then say, I'm free. And from that point forward, I realized that I would never, ever, ever look away. And when I looked at him, I did not see that wound, but I saw a heart that was so big, so incredibly genuine when we compare it to some of the things that we must endure today and some of the people that we must accept as friends, people that say they love us, but perhaps really don't. If that were your brother, would you look away? If that were your mother, would you look away? If it were your father or your sister, I don't think you would. And that would be because there was this inherent love that you shared for them that transcend everything else. And that is our goal as human beings to be able to accept individuals, nurture them, even though there is no, no kin blood running through our veins. Virtus Hardeman was born right here in Indiana. He was born in a little town, a little black township called Lyle Station, and it was and still is located just outside of Princeton about four miles east. It was 1922 when he was born to Irene and Claude Hardiman, and he had a brother named Melvin, and he had a sister named Vera. And in this little town, which is only about four square miles, there were, in, in its heyday, about 65 homes there. And those homes were, many of them, demolished in the great flood that occurred in Indiana. And the cornerstone of that community was a, a church, a church that still stands there today. Now, Virtus was a very shy, little, small, little, timid kid. He was one of those that, if we were choosing a baseball team, He'd be the last one chosen. And with that, there was a little school there in Lyle Station called Lyle Station Consolidated School. Now, this school used to be a school for whites and blacks, et cetera, until one day, you know, in those days, you, you didn't spare the rod. So they paddled the little kid, and the little kid was paddled by a black teacher and the little kid was white. Well, it raised a lot of turmoil and the superintendent felt that the only way to resolve this little brewing situation was to segregate the school. So that school no longer had white kids bust in. It became an all black school. It was a school that thrived. It was a wonderful school. In fact, the kids in this school outperformed all the other schools in the state of Indiana, including the white schools. It was a school whereby there was a little hook, normally a nail, and when you walked in, you would actually hang your coat, hang your hat on this nail and everybody shared those nails. Well, scalpel ringworm entered the equation. And for those of us who are not, who are not aware of scalpel ringworm, it's a fungus that's very, very contagious. Some of us remember it quite well because there was always a couple of kids in the school who were wearing this white cap, a little, little cap, that was placed on your head to make sure that you didn't spread the disease to any other child. Well, in the school, there was an outbreak, perhaps, of about 15 to 20 cases. Among them, little Virtus Hardeman was one of those. Actually, it was his brother, Melvin. Now, I want you to picture this. 
Virtus really wasn't school age at this point. Virtus caught the ringworm from his brother Melvin. Melvin was attending the school at the time because you did not attend school until age six in the 1920s. No such thing as kindergarten. Well, kids slept in the same bed, particularly if you were poor. And so, Virtus contracted the scalpel ringworm from his brother Melvin. Gibson County Hospital had just acquired radiation equipment, equipment that they were trying to learn how to use. And the superintendent and the superintendent of schools and the head physician at the county hospital were somewhat related and decided that they needed to know how to use this equipment and that if they concocted the story of being able to treat the scalpel ringworm with this new innovative approach that they would be able to determine what the acceptable levels of radiation were for the community and they would experiment on these kids. Thus is what happened to Virtus Hardiman. Mother put Virtus on the bus that day to get the what was, they felt was a free treatment. And mother, at age 92, by the way, on her deathbed, called her two sons together. They were both in their 70s at that point, And she finally again apologized to her children for putting them on that bus. An incredible story. The parents were very concerned about what happened to their children, had no idea what had occurred, decided that they were going to go down and pay a friendly visit to the hospital. The Princeton police force was called and the parents were forced to evacuate the lobby of the hospital. And this lack of information continued, continued, continued until finally there was a lady by the name of Miss Elliot. And Miss Elliot was a white lady, I might add, because you see what I like to do is bring balance to stories. By the way, this story is not a witch hunt. This story is actually a story of love and forgiveness when you see the story through its completion. But Miss Elliot saw these two boys who were walking in the marketplace and their heads appeared to be shaved and they were wearing these flat caps. That was the cap of the day. You know, that it's called a flat cap. And they had them turned to the side. In fact, one of the men, when I interviewed them a few years ago said, you know, these young folks today think that they're the only ones, they invented this turning your hats to the side. <laughs> we turned our hats to the side in the 1920s. So in doing so, Miss Elliot had heard that there were some cackling going on amongst some of these organizations, one in which she was a member of, this little high society group that played bridge. And they were talking about these little kids who had received what they call eye-popping levels of radiation. And she, just in her heart, knew that these two young boys were two of those victims. And she approached the Hardimans and asked them if she could ask some questions about their, her, their children. And she took it upon herself eventually to find lawyers to represent those parents. And she worked tirelessly because she knew it was wrong. And she knew it was not the right thing to occur. And she finally found that it was radiation. The parents actually took these officials to court, but because the parents signed permission slips, unfortunately, the case never went anywhere. So when I had an opportunity in 2006 to travel back to Indiana for the first time, what led me to that point? 
Well, after singing in the choir for 20 years with Virtus Hardeman and realizing from Virtus that he was an incredible man that I was becoming very close to, one day Virtus came in to me and said, you've always asked why I wore a wig. You've always tried to suggest perhaps that I put a little more gray in it because it was black. It was an Elvis Presley style wig. <laughs> you know, sort of slim on the sides, tall on the top, and remember, had no gray hair in it. And when he came into my office and said, do you wanna see? I was terrified. I knew this had something to do with why he carried himself the way he did. And when he took that beanie off of his head, and the rest is history, you saw what I saw for the first time. And I was compelled to tell his story. And I knew that there were so many lessons that can be learned by us viewing what this man lived with every day. You see, it reminds me of the phrase, I used to cry and sing the blues, for on my feet I had no shoes, until I met upon the street an orphan child who had no feet. Be thankful because there's someone who's worse off than you. Be grateful because there's always someone else who just loved to be in your shoes. What a foundation. What an opportunity for us to understand and truly absorb that powerful word called forgiveness. Who is it that you need to forgive? And how dare us perhaps not be more willing to forgive? Forgiveness is a very, very big word and sometimes misunderstood. It's something that must come along with the word time. And as time evolves, boy, does it ever ease those things that somehow before were so difficult, so hard to endure. The power of forgiveness I had an opportunity last summer to have my book read by 300 students at the University of North Carolina, all of them wanting to go into the field of either social work or medicine. And at that time, they were asked two to three things that affected them most about the story. And I was so surprised to see how thought-provoking the story actually was. But that one area that I've learned the most about is when they talked about the ability to let go, how they wished they had it, and how they were going to do everything in their power to be a little bit more like Virtus Hardeman. Virtus Hardeman had an opportunity to say, I'm angry. I gave him that opportunity. I interviewed him countless hours. I believe I had 22 hours of footage at the time when I was completed. I had spent hundreds of hours just waiting for him to say, those individuals who did this to me, I hope they rot in hell, I hope they this, I hope they that and I kept doing everything in my power to pull it out if it was there because I wanted to be objective. I wanted you to see the real man because I felt that if you saw that side of him that it perhaps even might be a little bit more human and you might believe that truly you were getting the real story but he never once. In fact, he said to me, 
I go to the altar every Sunday and I ask our creator for forgiveness. I ask the creator to guide my footsteps until I return to this altar. I ask every morning that God bless me. How can I ask for that? And yet, perhaps the person who did this to me has been before the exact same altar repeatedly and asked for that forgiveness and was granted the forgiveness. How can I not forgive? Because if I don't forgive and I'm angry, my heart's not right and my prayers will not be answered. And I said, oh my goodness, wow. How about this one? The morning, the, well, a few days after you saw him exposed to me, the pain that I felt that he was feeling. Could you imagine me asking him, Virtus, how are you doing? And he's saying with a smile, I'm doing fine, Wilbur. And I looked at him and it, I was like, again, he just threw me. Oh, please don't stop talking. I'm saying this internally. Please don't stop talking. This is wonderful. What a message you have. And then he continued, I'm feeling wonderful. I asked, what does that mean? He says, I can see, I can hear. I was raised in my right mind this morning. And then he said these words. That's a blessing. That's three blessings. And all I could do at that point was finally realize that this man has a message for us. A message that must be told. His church was very important to him. He was the person when we arrived, uh, we would have to do, we would go through our normal kind of warm up as you, the choir of course did this morning. And then he would find a few kids that were coming in and he'd give them, show them this little piece of candy he had for them. But he told them they would only get it if they were good in church. And mother said that they were good. So we had the most well-behaved kids <laughs> in our congregation. We've done a film. The film is completed, narrated by Dennis Haysburg. Dennis is the Allstate spokesperson, and I must share this with you for just a moment. Perhaps Dennis wouldn't mind if I did so. Dennis Haysburg came to my office, and the way I met Dennis, Dennis came to my office actually looking for a notary republic. And I do have notary services in our offices. And Dennis was driving up Lake, and he noticed, he normally goes, actually Dennis is from Pasadena. And, uh, Webster's bookstore up the street normally does notary services, but Webster's no longer does notary services, so they give Dennis this business card of a state farm agent and said, there's a state farm agent right down the street. You can go in there and get your items notarized. And Dennis says, oh, no, I, I saw an Allstate agent, so what I'll do is, uh, if you don't mind, I'll just stop in with the Allstate agent. Well, I was that Allstate agent. About two weeks prior, I had gone to Morgan Friedman, the actor, and I asked Morgan if he would be so kind as to narrate my, friend, my film. Well, Morgan's son is a very good friend of mine, Alfonso. So I talked to Alfonso, and Alfonso said, Wilbert, I'm going to come over, I'm going to look at the film, and after he saw the film, he says, you know, my dad and I have a standing agreement that I never, ever, ever bring work to him, but I am so moved by this story that I'm going to approach my father. So he told me when his father would be back in town, and at that point, we decided we would have a conference call. Well, the conference call came through, and Morgan was on the line, and what Morgan was on the line to do was to tell me, unfortunately, 
He is booked for the next two and a half years and he will not, he does not want to be this busy and he is deciding to sort of ease back. I told him I understood and immediately I went home and I said, who in the world am I going to find? And the only names that came to, came to me that I thought could resonate with this story was Dennis Haysbert. Well, Dennis Haysbert ended up calling me on my cell phone and I did not know him looking for a notary. I was en route to go and pick up payroll for the office. This was about three o'clock in the afternoon and I had a dental appointment at four. So I told Dennis, I said, Dennis, I'll be back at the office in about 20 minutes, but you've got to be there, got to be ready. But by the way, I didn't know that I was talking to Dennis Haysburg. You guys get this, okay? <laughs> and so I said, but you've got to be there at about by 20 to 4, I've got to uh, uh, be on the road to my dentist because I have a dental appointment at 4 o'clock. And so Dennis says, okay. I get back to my office. And as I'm driving back to my office, the question I have for my staff is why did you guys give this person my cell number for a simple notary? Lo and behold, when I got back to the office, the staff said, did he call you? Did you talk to him? Who? Dennis Haysburg. So then I'm so embarrassed and I didn't want to sit down and cry in front of my staff, so I pretended like, yeah, I talked to him trying to be cool, I go back and I sit down in my office, then I start crying. <laughs> Eventually, every minute ticking was like an hour of me waiting for him. Then all of a sudden I see this giant of a man, six foot four, walk across my storefront window, in through my doors into my office. And as he sat down, I couldn't compose myself. Man, have I been thinking about you. Then I worry that he's not thinking the wrong thing when I say something like that. And, but he was inquisitive and asked why I made that statement. And I started telling him about that story. And by the way, by the time I was done, Dennis walked out and had forgotten that he even came for a notary. And so as he was going out the door, I reminded him that I needed to notarize some documents. That was a Thursday. Dennis called me Friday, he called me Saturday, and twice on Sunday with questions about Lyle Station, about this story, because I had given him a copy of the film. And by Wednesday, we were in his studio actually recording the soundtracks. Dennis Haysburg has a fee of $50,000 per hour for voiceover work. And when I heard that, I, I couldn't believe it. I just thought that's literally impossible for someone to be in demand at that level. And it was verified by his manager. Well, Dennis Haysburg charged me $784 to do this film, and it was nine hours of work and Dennis took six months to cash my check. The reason he had to charge that was that was the SAG minimum and he could not work for free. That was the power of this story. The story I just told you, there are perhaps eight or nine others just as, just as important to this process as that one. But an incredible story a story of love and a story of forgiveness. And I would like to close by reminding you of the following fact. Forgiveness is extremely powerful. It is something that we all at some point in our lives perhaps need to think a lot more about and perhaps even more frequently. Some of us are carrying burdens with our parents. Some are having challenges with one of their perhaps loved ones, perhaps a husband, perhaps a wife. There is a thing called a computer. This is my computer. 
This is my hardware and this is my software. I have an opportunity to control my software. What am I feeding that computer? Mediocrity? How about anger? There's an old saying that anger unexpressed always results in pain. I could flip that around and say pain unexpressed always results in anger. Let it go. Sometimes it may be a little challenging, but it can be let go. If you take time and infuse it into the equation, you can let it go. Thank you for having me this morning. Thank you so very much for bringing that story and sharing with us again this morning. And thank you, all of you, for joining us for this celebration. I sincerely hope that you continue to reflect on this idea of forgiveness, that you also continue to explore stories, stories that are powerful and meaningful and hit us really close to home. I'd also like to invite you to join us for the remaining events for Martin Luther King Jr. celebrations. Um, this afternoon at two o'clock, we'll be having an environmental justice workshop in recognition that the work of justice does not just happen between people, but it happens between people and our environment. This will be a brief introduction to stories that focus at the national, state, and local levels, and hopefully bring up questions about how we can be, continue to be more responsible with uh, responsible stewards of our environment and our earth. Additionally, immediately following this event, we have our luncheon. This is an event where tickets, advanced tickets are required. We may have a few additional available at the registration table. Please check there if you're interested in attending our luncheon. Additionally, an initiative that we've done over the past two years and would like to continue in another way this year uh, is the 40 Days of Shalom. In the past, you may remember that Goshen College have done peace pledges and pledges related, uh, peace pledges and actions that correspond with 40 days. This is to extend the idea of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday to recognize that his message does not just reside in one day, but it's something that should compel us to action throughout the year. And so in a partnership with the Wellness Committee and Campus Ministries, we have fashioned items of action for the next 40 days that relate specifically to the Goshen community and challenge us to continue to make a difference in our own lives and the lives of others by participating in these acts. Bookmarks will be available with the days of action as you exit and the day's announcement, the daily, the daily assignment, the daily action will be on the communicator each day. Finally, uh, for students in Goshen community, we'd like to extend the conversation around healthcare, around healthcare access to the interdisciplinary conversation scheduled to take place this Wednesday, January 23rd at 10 a.m. in Newcomer 19. We will be talking, we'll be hearing from Michelle Horning and Brenda Schroff from the business and nursing departments respectively to explore some of the consequences of our employment-based healthcare system. Um, also, we'd like to invite you to, if you would like to purchase any of the books by Dana Johnson or Wilbert Smith, his book and video will be available as, some, as well as some of the um, fiction work of Dana Johnson at a table as you exit this direction. Um, those are the announcements I have. I'm seeing one more, and then we have an announcement for some students. Yes, thank, thank you. you.
Dr. Smith asked me to uh, suggest to you that if you'd like more information, please check out holeinthehead.com for more information. Thanks. Um, hi guys, I'm Olivia. And I'm Jose. And we're just a couple of the freshman Stolzfus students of Goshen College. And Stolzfus is an academic award that recognizes leadership among minorities and we are here to present our project for Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which you all have the opportunity to be a part of. Um, the theme for this year is Shalom, that we may be whole. And we would like to invite the community to express this idea in a written or artistic way. As you exit this event, you will see tables set up with markers and squares of cloth for you to share your ideas of Shalom using words or drawings. Um, over the course of the next month, we will sew these squares together to make a large quilt that we will display around campus uh, throughout Peace Week, March 10th through the 15th. And if you need more time, you can take these with you and drop them off by Friday to one of our drop boxes located in the library, Java Junction, and the CIIE section of the Union Building. Um, the connection of Shalom to Martin Luther King Jr. Day is through his dream for everyone to be equal and whole and for racism to be exterminated. Through Shalom, we are completing Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream of unification and peace. Thank you. Once again, thank you for coming, and we're dismissed. Thank you.